Hi Revive Stronger listeners, I want to take a moment of your time to make you aware of a very special event we are running shortly. On the 14th of July, Mike Isretel and Jared Feather from Renaissance Periodization will be joining us in London for a single day seminar covering the scientific principles of advanced hypertrophy. To purchase a ticket, see the link in the description box of this podcast episode. It will be amazing to see you there. As a listener of the podcast, we can guarantee you will absolutely love the exclusive content that will be presented at the seminar, going deep into things such as structuring your mesocycles nutritionally with your training as well to optimize muscle growth, plus extensive Q&As. So don't miss out. Get your ticket today. Hi guys, welcome to Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host as always, Steve Hall, and I'm joined by Mike Isretel from Renaissance Periodization once again for a Q&A. Um, and I just want to first of all really quickly say, by the time this comes out, the ticket sales for uh, Mike Isretel and Jared Feather's Advanced Hypertrophy Seminar will be on sale, uh, which is on the 14th and 15th of July. Um, I expect the VIP tickets will have sold out by now, uh, but for sure, get your chance at getting an early bird ticket because that'll be the best ones available. That's super exciting. I literally spoke to Jared about what he's talking about uh, yesterday, uh, and that was, I mean, it sounded incredible, um, kind of setting up macro cycles and mesocycles and spool manipulations for for clients. Um, And then obviously Mike is going to be bringing out uh, the big guns as well. So uh, those will be on sale. There'll be a link below. And also just a big thank you to our three Patreons who we have at the moment, uh, Marcus, Mike Sad, and Theodore Basher, um, who are helping support the podcast because we are now on Patreon. Um, and if you do want your questions answered and prioritized for Mike, then uh, become a supporter. And that's one of the benefits you get. Uh, there might be more benefits by then, but uh, we literally just released being on Patreon recently. So I want to say a massive thank you. So without further ado, uh, we'll get straight into the questions because uh, I know Mike loves answering the questions. And I do want to point out the amazing T-shirt that Mike has on. Uh, Mr. Strong, which is highly appropriate. <laughs> Yahoo. <laughs> and so the first one I wanted to dig into, and I touched on this briefly with Mike off air, was talking about something I think a lot of us uh, bodybuilders and physique athletes have trouble dealing with, is that it's kind of the short-term versus the long-term optimality. Uh, and that is where in the short term, something on paper looks like it might be the optimal approach, something like an aggressive mini cut. Whereas in the long term, there might be something else that is actually going to be more optimal for you to take. So I'd love to hit kind of actually similar to Mike's spoken about. If, if you want to build the most muscle in one workout, you're just going to train absolutely balls to the wall. Like you're just going to do everything you've got kind of training up to that MRV point. Whereas over if you have a long period of time that's totally not the way you want to go about things so i just would love mike if you want to kind of talk a little bit more to this point yeah i can think of two things offhand that are sort of considerations for long-term development that are not for short term one is in they're both part of a phase potentiation principle of training one is the question of how does your current phase set up future phases if the answer to that is uh, I don't know, or it definitely doesn't, then you, you kind of have a problem there. Um, and the other one is how much residual uh, sort of discordant 
goings on are you going to trigger with a current phase that you'll have to deal with in later phases that disrupts the laser later phases. So we kind of have this neutral point of your current training and dieting doesn't affect your future at all. It can be positive in the sense that the effect can be, um, you know, your current potentiates your future uh, and actually makes it better. Uh, and then it can be negative in the sense that the potentiation is non-existent or is radically outclassed by the amount of disruption uh, that you'll have to deal with uh, at some point. That disruption can come in, in the terms of desensitization, in terms of uh, low variation, fatigue, etc. So, uh, you know, for example, uh, like you, you said, Steve, if we're doing one super tough workout – and we want to grow as much as possible from one workout, yeah, we just train MRV for sure, maybe a little bit over even to take care of functional overreaching. But if you're in microcycle one of a four mesocycle accumulation phase, training as hard as you can in one training session, I mean, in quite the literal sense, it doesn't potentiate you for anything further because you've run out of overload room. So that's a zero. And then it gives you a shitload of fatigue uh, that really screws up your next training session, your next microcycle. So it gives you that definitely that negative end of that that twofold process, and uh, you know I will say in something that I think James pointed out, and maybe another commentator in our RP Plus webinar because those folks are really sharp and they always have really really good zingers to say, is that you also have to maybe make a trade off between current optimality and long term optimality. Uh, it, it's and it's the trade off you want. So there's not a rule that says you have to train exclusively for the long term. And there's also not a rule that says you have to train uh, exclusively for stuff to get better now. You're allowed to invest in the future at the expense of today, which, you know, in economics is called like future valuation. Um, but you are also don't have to do that and can do that. And to the degree you want to do that, that is up to you. So for example, if you want to look good for the summer and you know, ideally you won't um, set up your logical sequence of events to gain the most muscle you can over the course of the year by putting a cutting phase before the summer. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's your choice and maybe you could do like a cut to reasonable leanness that doesn't take too much time or, take too much potentiation away from your further mass, or especially in the case of massing, sort of disrupt the, um, the momentum effect of massing. But like, uh, you know, and, and maybe that's cool for you. But as long as you know the trade-offs, it's fine. So if you're like, you know what, I just want to get lean for summer. I don't give a fuck what happens after. Shit, we'll burn your ass up. You'll do a bodybuilding cut right into the summer and you'll look like amazing, right? But you know, on the other hand, if you're like, I don't give a shit about how I look this summer. I want to be Mr. Olympian 2027. You can forget about dieting this summer if it doesn't physically arrange with what you need. So I think there's the spectrum there. And we have to look at, uh, you know, so a lot of folks um, watching this are going to be coaches themselves or just thinkers about their own program. If you or your clients, you know, want certain things, find out what they want, find out what their time horizons are. And if they want to look good now, they don't really super care about later, you know, but because uh, there's not a rule that says you have to care about one or the other. There is a reality that you shouldn't be surprised about which one you chose when it came to fruition. So 
you know, if you're like, oh man, that cut really fucked me up for my mass gain be like, yeah, I told you that literally. <laughs> so I think that's, uh, unless you want me to dig in any deeper, I think that's kind of that overview there. No. Yeah. Brilliant. And I just, one that really popped into my head was, um, focusing on weak points very early in your training career. And I know you've spoken about how right. that can potentially hamper your long-term progress. And sometimes it's just people don't have that long-term vision. They want massive biceps when day one, they go into the gym. Sure. Yeah. There's a question of balance. And uh, the big problem with training for balanced physique is that it necessarily deprioritizes your strongest body parts. Um, and it, through that way, it slows down overall growth like crazy. So if you want to be balanced now, you can forget about being your biggest now and you can forget about getting as big as fast as you could in the future. If you get save the balancing act for when you're already at a higher level, there's a number of advantages to that. But the problem is you don't really ever reach balance until you're at a very high level. And then so you kind of just have to make that trade off. And um, it's a fine trade off to be a balanced 130 pounds uh, versus a raw but jacked 160 and then eventually a balanced 180 um it's a different thing for sure but there's nothing wrong with it as long as you're not under the illusion when you're bring taking up a whole mesocycle away from back training anything above your maintenance volume to bring up your side delts just don't be under the illusion that you're doing yourself any long-term size favors so Brilliant. Yeah, I think we could probably delve into so many examples here, but it's probably not warranted. It's just having that perspective of not kind of succumbing to the short term mindset and having that kind of longer term mindset is always going to help you. So yeah, if that's what you want, right? And if you really want the short term, great. But I, it's people don't usually want the short term, but they just kind of like just kind of uh, they want it, but they don't really want it. So it's good for a coach to be like, you realize you're fucking yourself over a little bit in the future. And a lot of people have trouble moving their mouth enough to say yes, because they're like, ah, okay, fine, let's not do what I said, let's do what you said. And then that's great. But if they're like, no, look, honestly, like, you know, if you're like a, like a 50 year old man and you've got a high school reunion coming up, well, what the fuck are your long term goals anyway? Like, this is it. This is a long term goal. Time to get in shape, right? Whereas in other, you know, you got a 20 year old wants to get cut for the summer maybe but he's not sure about it be like what do you want to be when you grow up he's like jacked yeah. huge you're like this is not a good idea then okay fine mm -hmm. and yeah I, I mean probably coaches listening will be able to relate to these i i have it all the time with clients where they want to diet through deloads or they want to continue a diet after okay. they've already been dieting like three four months and we're planning in a maintenance phase or they don't want to deload because they're in mass and they want to just grind through um, many weeks of training or they don't want to take that maintenance phase after a long period of time of high volumes uh, people just they, they have attachment to things and they don't want to give it up or very often you know what's funny um on this exact note i was traveling in europe for three weeks recently for rp seminars and they, um, I ended up having uh, a little minor injury, which I'm recovering from in my leg, in my sartorius, actually, which is a really interesting muscle to injure. Um, but that precluded me from doing any jujitsu for the last two weeks of the trip. I have had like 
like shooting pain down my neck from jujitsu for like like two years. As of right now, the, I still feel a little weirdness in my arm every now and again, but the pain is almost completely gone because of two weeks away from jujitsu. And I've rolled like three or four times since I've gotten back. And even the first roll, I was sharp because I dropped so much fatigue. And there's a thing in technical sports, especially with game strategy, technical sports, where you free up your thinking by not just being ingrained in the same pattern over and over again. Because once you start rolling, it's you kind of start doing the same shit. And I started moving in ways I haven't. And then yesterday I rolled and I was just like a, a fucking super dangerous all new machine, even though I'm not moving fast intentionally because my fucking leg is still I'm try, still trying to be conservative and not fuck it in the ass. So it was just kind of one of these things where it's like, and I did take a mini like sort of active rest kind of deload there at the end. And uh, at the end of that active rest deload, like I remember like checking out my physique in an airport bathroom, of course, in Ireland <laughs> uh, before we flew back. And I was like, ah, like I was way lighter. Um, I was, you know, hadn't taken special sports supplements in a long time. And I just looked like shit. And I was like, fuck, this sucks. I look like I'm just awful. I've like taken so many steps back over the last week. So I finished, I came back, I did a mini cut and that gave me down to 232 pounds. I woke up today, this is three days later after the mini cut was over and 242 pounds. I'm really starting to fill out and I'm fucking gigantic and I have all the muscle I ever had and seemingly more and I didn't skip a fucking beat and the maintenance is amazing. It, it active rest and it really heals you but it's so hard to take because just for a personal perspective, like, you know, you guys think, you know, you're listening, you're on the spot for like always wanted to look jacked and pumped. I have to go to seminars and sit there in a t-shirt or a tank top and, and people walk in to see me in life for the first time. And be like, nah, I thought Dr. Mike was bigger. Is it, gonna, <laughs> does it matter that if I explain that I'm deflated and intentionally cutting carbs and haven't trained hard in a week and a half, nobody gives a shit. So I just have to kind of swallow it. You know what I mean? And, but then later, you know, I post pictures on Instagram of me training and super pumped and people are like, Oh my God, you look fucking enormous. And it's just like, it just comes and goes and all that shit is noise. So you just keep doing what you're doing for the long term, And eventually people are going to be like, how did you get this jacked and lean? And you'll be like, by not following my emotions the way I wanted to, this is short answer, which by the way, Steve, you are looking fucking enormous, man. <laughs> well, thank you. And hopefully I won't look all deflated by the end of the mini cut and I'll just look even better. So I everything's think going well. Because of the carbohydrate restriction, you will be deflated. I can promise you that. You're going to feel really terrible. And then about four days after the mini cut is over, you're going to look your all-time best and completely absurd once your glycogen fills out. That's what I'm hoping for. It's going to be a, a bit of a shot going from, well, at least I'm deloading. So I brought calories down slightly. So carbs are still sitting around 500 and they're going to go to like 250. Boy, oh boy, different times. <laughs> so no fantastic and that was a great discussion the tiny addendum that i think everyone can relate to is like powerlifters who continually want to do their one rep max wow. testing and bodybuilders who continually want to be shredded that's that kind of not realizing the long-term perspective so um that was a great chat and the next thing i wanted to get into was i i see it as a slight trend that's kind of kind of going around at the moment um in ways for kind of bodybuilders physique athletes in their off season to kind of optimize or maintain their insulin sensitivity by manipulating things such as fasting. Um, so going for a period of time where they fast to try and upregulate insulin sensitivity um, and also 
on a related note, giving the gut a break from heavy digestion because they're eating such a large amount of food. Um, I don't know if this is relevant or if it's something that you've seen any kind of benefits of. Yeah, so let's talk about fasting first. The upside of fasting is that it does improve insulin sensitivity. The downside of fasting is it results in muscle loss. And the worst downside of fasting, oh shit. Bill Cosby has been found guilty on all counts in sexual assault retrial. Is that your phone, Mike? Nice cover. My phone tells me, (laughs) thanks. Oh yeah, that's my cover. And then, super cool, let's hold on, let me get rid of Bill Cosby, that's super fucked up way to display that. Um, Come on, oh, there it is. This is my fiance's artistically drawn face by her brother. Nice. It's so good. Anyway, yeah. 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 So, uh, and I'm unrelated to Bill Cosby, I sure hope. Um, all right. So anyway, now that our childhood dreams have been thoroughly destroyed, let's talk about fasting, fasting, great for uh, getting back insulin sensitivity, terrible for maintenance of muscle loss, although you can get almost all of it back. So it's not a huge issue. You're just going to piss a little bit of time away getting your muscle back. The much worse part is the fatigue accumulation. Because remember, food is number two or three in the most important ways to recover. So you're going to cause some fatigue accretion if you're doing this while you're training hard. If you fast while you're not training hard, you're for sure losing muscle. (laughs) And then you just, you know, my nuclear domain and all that will get your muscle back, but Fuck, man, that's a lot of muscle to lose for no goddamn good reason. Um, And, uh, you know, so here's the deal. What are we really looking for? What are the most powerful effectors of insulin sensitivity? Genetics aside, uh, the most powerful effector of insulin sensitivity is your lean mass to fat mass ratio. Like if you're, as displayed very well by body fat percent, okay? So if your body fat percentage is lower, Anything below 15 is fine, but anything close to 10 and, and, and even lower is just fucking, you're just a glucose disposal machine at that point. Um, and then anything above 15% to 20 is okay, probably. And anything above 20 is probably getting a little bit too insensitive for optimal results, certainly. And that's probably not great for your health. But um, so as long as you're lean, uh, however you got there, it doesn't really matter. Your insulin sensitivity is relatively high. Here's how I put this in perspective. Um, a cohort of older adults in one of the earlier studies on growth hormone were given growth hormone administration at relatively low superphysiological doses, at two or three times what you would see in a normal individual. And growth hormone has a literal uh, chemical effect uh, of uh, increasing your insulin resistance. I mean, it just does that like it clips into a receptor, just increases insulin resistance, what it does. The opposite of sensitivity. They noticed in the individuals that they tested for several months with supplemental growth hormone that they experienced no decline or improvement in insulin sensitivity. How the fuck come? They were taking growth hormone at like pretty high doses. How come they didn't build insulin resistance? Because the growth hormone made them lose so much fat, it counterbalanced completely. So how much does leanness matter for insulin sensitivity? Like as much as pharmaceutical drugs that are supposed to reverse it. A lot. <laughs> after leanness is covariated out, so after you take it out of the analysis you're doing, there's very little left. And one of the things left is, are you on a current hypocaloric diet 
believe it or not, hypochloric diets in the long term result in leanness. So funny enough, we can't even pull those apart. Uh, so it's really hard to study a hypocaloric condition, including fasting, on uh, insulin effects because we have to ask the question, okay, is it because of something that happened on the diet? Like, for example, there's not a lot of glucose around and the receptors are resensitized because of this, or is it because you actually lost body fat, right? Now, they have some clever ways of delineating this, and it turns out there is an independent effect of low nutrient exposure, right, hypocaloric dieting. But uh, it's much smaller than the effect of total body fat, okay? You give me somebody 50% fat who's fucking pre-diabetic, they go on a four-day fast, they're pre-diabetic as fuck after that. Give a shit what the fuck, they eat anything or the magic foods, it doesn't matter. But you give me someone who's 9% and making them insulin resistant is really, really hard. And it doesn't matter if they're chewing McDonald's every meal, you're going to test their blood glucose response and you'll be like, okay, it's like you're fasted all the time. Like, yeah, correct, 9% fat. My body's fucking starving all the time, that's why. So, yes, low-calorie diet does, in the short term, enhance insulin sensitivity. Now, does fasting enhance it any more than a low-calorie diet by itself? Yes, because the magnitude of the, of the low calories is fucking zero or, or negative 3,500 if your maintenance is 3,500 as opposed to a hypocaloric diet. But here's the thing. It's got all those negative uh, effects as well for uh, protein loss or muscle loss and uh, fatigue, and it's just discordant with lifestyle. I mean, imagine, like, you got to go to work. You got to answer client emails, and they're like, so what do I do about my body fat? You're like, body Oh, well, where the fuck am I? Well, I'm like in London. What the fuck's going on? Like, I don't even know my name, right? Fuck that. So instead of fasting to regain insulin sensitivity, go on a relatively short, several week period of decreasing your body fat and, and, and exposing yourself at the same time to very hypocaloric conditions, mostly protein, some fats, a little bit of carbs. Um, training actually uh, enhances insulin sensitization as well. So if you continue to train, your muscles continue to take up all the glucose you're eating and they just starve out everything else. So then the insulin sensitivity goes up. A high level of physical activity helps too. So go around, see shit. You might as well because you're going to be thinking about killing yourself from all the food you're not eating. Um, yeah, let's go to see a museum, honey. Why? Because I need to be anywhere. There's no fucking food. You show up. It's an art, art museum of like hamburgers throughout the years. You're like, okay, this can't be happening. So all that stuff together, and all of a sudden, you know, just doing that is on the net balance for bodybuilders and active individuals that like their muscle mass and their daily lives, probably more effective than fasting or just as effective at insulin sensitization, but better at staving off all of the other problems. So the fasting is, um, you know, at best like a C plus solution where we have A plus solutions possible just normal hypocaloric dieting with plenty of protein. Um, I hope that answers the insulin sensitivity question. And the other one, sorry, real quick, is don't get to be a fat fucking mess. Um, if you're running uh, compounds that uh, decrease your insulin sensitivity, like growth hormone, don't run it like a fucking idiot. Don't run slit on top of it year round. And then uh, stay leaner and take periods where you don't take insulin and lower your growth hormone dose or something else. Uh, talk to your coach and uh, you won't need to fast. Um, and, and so uh, that's kind of the, the, what do you think about that? Yeah, I guess I, I don't know if you might have answered it and I just want to make sure that you have in the context of a diet where you are um, hypercaloric, but you're taking just your eating window and you're reducing it. So you're just you're, you're going to backload a load of calories. So you're still maybe um, at maintenance, at least if not in a, to a surplus, is that going to have any effect on your insulin sensitivity? 
Yes. In the short term, like literal hours that you're starving, totally. After that, absolutely not. Because the amount of food you have to eat in order to calorically counterbalance that and stay in a maintenance when you are in your feeding window is the kind of glucose exposure you see like oh, morbidly obese people expose themselves to on a chronic basis. So you're basically like a starving runway model for half the day and a fat piece of shit for the other half the day. Do they cancel out mostly? Is there a better way? Probably. Um, and remember like this entire time, this is all in the context of people who resistance train. Um, general, and this is something Broderick can expand on more from a just general biological perspective. You don't want physiological perturbations in any needless extent to a system that is trying to recover from an inherent perturbation of training. Training's already hard enough. Your body's already trying to adapt to it. Why would you make needless gargantuan sort of uh, weaving away from stability in these crazy pulsatile ways of fucking eat a shitload and not eat anything and eat a shitload. Your body's going to be like, fuck, fuck, fuck. what the fuck? It's going to have all these adaptive mechanisms running while it's supposed to be healing your dumb ass. And how the fuck are you going to train hard and build muscle if you don't eat for half the fucking day? Well, you're not, right? It's just, uh, you're gonna, you're gonna feel like, um, you know, when you're, uh, I don't know, like in your nice and sore and you trained your legs, um, and, and you like, uh, do some work and you sit down for a meal and you just like, you eat it and you're like, yes, feed my fucking legs. I want to grow. Imagine like 16 hours a day where you like, your legs are sore and you're like, Ooh, I'm sore. And people are like, that means you're growing. Right. And you're like, mm-hmm. and in your own head, you're like, Nope, not growing right now. <laughs> sure as hell not probably losing muscle. I'll start growing in a couple hours, I guess. This is fucking ridiculous. Right. Um, and I remember Alan Aragon, somebody asked him about anabolic fasting and he was like, those two words just don't, they don't go together. This you eat, that's how you eat and grow. And then if you want to lose weight, you eat less. But the, yeah, the whole fasting thing is, uh, it is the talk of the hour. It will in several years no longer be. And everyone will, will, you know, will think of how ridiculous it was. Everyone used to think of in the nineties, if you were like, I'm fasting, you would just get reported to an eating disorder <laughs> clinic right away. Now you're an autophagy specialist, you know? So no, I know Broderick, I think has spoken on the podcast a little bit about over um, on kind of the insulin sensitivity and things like this. And he almost, he kind of lost his head a little bit, got a bit angry. And uh, he was just, the, the, the quote I remember is kind of action over time and don't fuck yeah. around with these tiny little details um, went to, to no end really. hundred percent to negative end because you're fucking around with them as fucking up other systems. It, it really is. Cool. No, brilliant. Uh, that's cleared that one up nicely. So I'll actually get to the first of the listener questions. Unfortunately, none of our Patreons actually um, asked a question, so I don't need to prioritize them right now. So Michael Podjeko said, um, he said, all signs showing that we have too little fat in our diet. So he kind of wants to know what signs are we looking for if maybe we've got too little fat uh, within our diet. So I guess he's kind of doing the high carb approach and sure. Um, sex drive seems to be pretty reliable for males. I'm not sure about females. Um, so like if I'm in a surplus of calories, eating 700 grams of carbohydrate, I've noticed that every time my fat dips below, um, you know, 0.6 grams per kilo, I just don't, feel like anything super sexual anymore just don't 
Um, and I'm like, what the, at first I was like, what the fuck is wrong with me? I'm on so many carbs and so much food and it didn't fucking matter. And then I'll have a couple of days, like I'll take a cheat meal or two, uh, once a day and get a way more fat. And at the end of those two days, I'm like poking shit with my erect penis in public, <laughs> you know, all kinds of inconvenience. But basically I'm just like, Oh my God, like it's just rush. Like I feel like a fucking teenager again. So, you know, confused, shy, and questioning my sexual <laughs> identity. Um, but uh, it's just one of these things where, uh, you know, that's a pretty decent sign for me. Um, another one is kind of like sort of lower energy levels than you would expect with that many carbs. Like you get enough carbs and you feel pretty jazzed up. But if your fats are really underdone, especially for, I think, a couple of days, you start to be like, oh, like, I, th I thought I'd feel better than this, you know. Um, another one is when you're massing. Uh, fat hunger on a mass, uh, it's just all because some people just crave more fat, so it doesn't mean necessarily, but in the realm of if all the other signs are there. So, for example, like you've eaten a big meal of pasta and chicken or fish, and you're at like on the low end of car or of fat for the last couple of days, you're full. And then someone's like, Do you want more pasta? You're like, No, like, do you want anything sweet? You're like, No, and they're like, we're ordering pizza. Do you want a slice? And you're like, yeah, I could go for a slice of pizza. Wait, what the fuck? Like, why? I mean, like, cause it's, and you think about the cheese and then like <laughs> bacon and nut butter. You see someone eating nut butter. You're like, Ooh, I forgot what that tastes like. I want some, like if you're adequately fatted and hypercarbed, you're like, get food the fuck away from me. And someone's like pizza. And you're like, I'm going to throw up. Do not point that pizza at me. But if you're under fat, you think you crave fat independently. Your sex drive does some funny things. People say joint problems and stuff, but I mean that's a low body fat percentage. That's not intake daily intake problem. Um, my best solution is this: if he suspects that he's at the low, at too low of an end, remember there's no bonus points. Broderick even puts the value at like um, at one gram per kilogram. Yeah. Right. I put it at 0.6 as the minimum. So why don't you, if you're a 0.6 or below, question asker, go to 0.8 and see for a week or two and see if you feel way better. And if you do, yeah, you were underdosing it. If you feel no different at all and you felt fine before, you can either stay at 0.8 or go back to 0.6. Um, if you really want to be sure, go back up, go, go up to 1.0. You're still within the good margin of what's considered a high carb, low fat diet. And if 1.0, you feel way better. Or if you feel worse at 1.0, like you just feel like a fat slob and you can't barely eat your food, your appetite's down, then it's too much. And then go back to 0.8, maybe that back to 0.6. But for me, when I move from point, um, 0.4, 0 0.5 per kilo, and I move to 0 0.6, 0 0.65, I was like, wow, I feel completely different. And for me, that was, uh, you know, uh, to be on the sure side. Awesome. Yeah, no, I, I love that. And I think I actually, the only thing I think I talked to Broderick about it um, for, for myself one-on-one -on -one, and he said changes in kind of skin. So if skin's like dry or you're getting particular like spots or something. So that's the only thing he brought up. In yeah, if your skin starts drying out, you might be low, low in fat intake. And if it's nice and oily or whatever, then you're probably fine. But there's a lot of variation. I guess it's just for your own personal skin. Yeah. Uh, then again, like, you know, temperature, it's, uh, et cetera, weather can influence that stuff. So that might be another cool thing to throw in. And if that you can check the box with like four of those, you're probably getting in too little fat. If you can only check with a couple of them, move to point eight and see how you feel. Brilliant. No, awesome. And you actually covered off his second part of that question. He said, uh, can more dietary fat 
increased joint health. So you covered that off is basically related to kind of body fat levels. Uh, for sure. And uh, if there is an association with joint health acutely, which I don't believe there is, uh, you will sure hell's hell figure it out when you move out to 0. 0.8 or 1.0. And if your joints start feeling better in a couple of weeks, man, there, there you go. Problem solved. So th- there's a really question is like, um, you know, if there was just a really big risk or really huge downside and moving to 0. 0.8, I would be more careful about my advice. But it's one of those like, you know, if you think you're missing out, just try it. Like, it's almost like being like, I usually get the raspberry flavor frozen yogurt. But I want the chocolate flavor. I just don't. What do you think? You know, Steve, what do you think? Should I do it? And you'd be like, how often do you go to the fucking frozen yogurt shop? You're like, after every workout. Like, okay, why don't you just get the chocolate one time? You're like, I don't. But then what if I don't like it? It's like, well, then fucking tomorrow you can, you just throw it away and get another one. And it's like, right, right. Like, what's the downside? Well, you're not fucking allergic to chocolate. There is no real downside. Point eight, you're not just going to blow up into a fucking. Finding Nemo-like balloon pufferfish mess, like it's not going to happen. So, and it could be much better. Uh, and man, every time I tell Broderick, like, you know, hey, uh, Jared and I would have like an informal competition. This is so stupid, please, folks. Please don't do this at home. Jared and I would <laughs> brag to each other about how many carbs we ate with how little fat. And then Jared's <laughs> like, I ate this is the many seven hundred with thirty grams of fat. And I'm like, I beat him once. I got like seven hundred with twenty-five grams of fat. And I was like, I don't have a sex drive. And he's like, I haven't had one for weeks. And then we were both like. Fuck, we gotta, we gotta stop doing this shit. So it goes no, I promise you, it's the road to nowhere. Yeah, I think um, actually talking from experience, I know Pascal is a big fan of high carb and he went very low fat, high carb for quite a long time and he exhibited some of the same kind of symptoms. So uh, he would agree with you that it's not a great idea. For sure, 100%. Awesome, so we get to Francisco Martinez Narajo Do. That is his whole name. Oh, no, wait, no, do is it do is the start of the question. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent, Steve. We're here reading comprehensions on point today. So um, do, and the the question's even better than my comprehension. So he said, and this was liked by a lot of people, which is why I am asking it. Do super hairy people require a higher protein intake? Um, And then second question to that. Also, why the hell the body decides to cut muscle in, uh, muscle protein synthesis, one in a deficit, but not body hair protein synthesis. Um, and this was, yeah, liked by a lot of people. So I was like, well, I've got to ask this question. Yeah. The amount of protein in your hair. So like if you measure all the hair you grow per month, like I am shaved once every month or two. And the amount of total hair that we get off my body measures in the less than a hundred grams range. So come on now. (laughs) So no, you don't use a lot of protein for hair growth. Bigger people do not need, or hairier people do not need more protein. If you were to assume that hairy people need more protein, you would be looking at such a fine level of specificity that you would need to know the exact metabolic rates of like 50 different tissues of theirs. And maybe they're like their squamous layer in their skin just happens to be more protein consumptive than you would have predicted. But you have to have no idea because there's, there's no way to see that. Right. So, you know, so what are you going to do? You can eat an extra gram of protein per day. <laughs> All right. You know, sprinkle that fucking gram in fine. So no, uh, it's highly unlikely. And then the second question was why does your body not uh, spare hair growth, but it spares muscle? It spares hair growth. It spares nail growth. It spares everything. All systems that grow, grow less quickly uh, when uh, you are um, 
in a hypocaloric condition. So yeah, and individuals who um, are very, very undernourished actually experience hair loss <laughs> um, and their uh, skin grows less quickly, their cuts heal less quickly, your nails grow slower uh, on your ha- fingernails and toenails when you're in a deprived state. Uh, the thing is, is that um, they still grow to some extent or they pretty much almost stop because they're all super vital uh, to have in, in some capacity. Uh, if your nails start shrinking, they're going to lose the very nature of their function because their size is very important to cover up your, your, the bed there that otherwise you're just like exposed all the time. And also for ancestral humans, your nails are supposed to be long so you can use them to pry things open, scratch shit, stuff like that. Um, your muscle isn't a thing that is needed at super physiological levels. Um, and it, you can have less muscle and still perform adequately. Whereas if you just got rid of all your body hair in a natural environment tomorrow, you would freeze to death um, and all kinds of really, really bad stuff. You know, people forget um, about what it is that hair actually does. Um, this is one of those naturalistic fallacy type of situations where people think we all used to live on Pandora and fucking avatars and shit like that. One of the reasons you have hair in a variety of places is that a longer hair is that it's supposed to keep bugs away because they have to physically crawl through the hair to get to sensitive places uh, and or other animals and or humans. Um, so uh, like, for example, one of the, one of the reasons you probably have hair on your genitals is so that the area around your genitals can be uh, hyper aware of any intrusion. So you can scratch a fucking bug off your dick because you need your dick to survive in the literal sense via progeny <laughs> and if it gets fucking bitten by a spider and necrosis and falls off you're fucking done <laughs> so people you know like hair is not important in our modern world totally but if you get a brazilian whole body wax and we throw you into the jungle you will miss your hair immediately. <laughs> and your boy right here will be just fine a matter of fact i have a my grandfather didn't get bit by mosquitoes because his hair on his whole body was so long that they simply were trapped on their way in and died in the angled <laughs> mess. What a fucking legend. Uh, that's such a hilarious because now I think about it and when people, like, I'm glad you've said this because like um, sunburn. So like, I don't, if it's sunny outside, I need to put on my face and on yep. my arms, but my legs and like barely need to do my face because I yep. put hair all over it. Um, yep. So, uh, yeah, there's a protection there as well, which I assume is actually nature. Like, you Oh, absolutely. Remember. If you have a bald head, you have to put sunblock on your yeah. fucking head. As a matter of fact, that reminds me, I'm going on vacation to the Caribbean with my fiance for our honeymoon, actually. And oh, uh, in a couple of weeks, yeah, and I got to make sure to put my fucking, I'm going to be shaved bald by then. I got to put some fucking serious, I have to just get a hat. Fuck yeah. that. You know what I'm saying? Down there, you need a hat. There's not enough sunblock in the world to protect my dumb white ass from that shit. <laughs> Fantastic. And I think we have time for one more question. Um, and this is from Dan Kirk. And this is relating to uh, Borg, who you know, um, with the Maya reps. And he stated, um, apparently Borg states that he believes reps closer to failure are responsible for more growth. Um, and this has been termed kind of effective reps. So doing less sets with a higher RPE would produce better muscle growth than the same amount of volume, but with lower RPEs. 
So he said he'd love to hear your opinion on it. Um, and I, I assume you're not going to disagree. <laughs> yeah. We have to not take that logic too far because uh, less sets with a higher RPE um, also means a, a lot of, a lot more per volume fatigue. And there's Sorry, I thought it was equated sets. I'm not going to assume you agree. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> I was like, huh? <laughs> yeah. So like, um, you, you gotta, um, you gotta make sure that there's, there's, there's this spectrum and this fine line and there's this way to walk on that path. So you want to start mesocycles at the lower end of the effective rep range, uh, really quite far away from failure, but still effective minimum, minimum effective. And you're going to go closer and closer to failure through your mesocycle by the time you get to the end of it, you will be doing pretty close to failure stuff and everything will be like a fucking Maya rep for sure. Um, that's definitely the case. And uh, I think that, uh, you know, the average set, if you had to take an average, would be like two, three reps from fail. If I, if I never got a chance to tell someone about progression, which would suck, and they were like, just how many reps away from failure should I train? I usually say like that, like two or three. Um, because then they can apply other overload modalities that don't include RIR and then they just get better. But if you tell someone four, they just never train hard enough yeah. to get their best. And if you tell someone failure or one, I mean, you're really fucking them over. So, um, in that context, I think Maya reps are a very good tool, but I don't think they're the optimal long-term way to train because in the volumes necessary for you to train your whole body with Maya reps over and over and over, I think they would be um, more fatiguing on the net balance. Their fatigue to fitness enhancement ratio would be lower than more conventional training. I think they have a great purpose in economizing on workout time in machine-based smaller movements and in muscles that are just really difficult to fatigue, like biceps, side delts, rear delts, maybe calves. I think I've pretty much trained my calves and my rep style unknowingly from – like more or less my entire bodybuilding career and my calves are like pretty big. So it works. <laughs> um, but if I tried to do that with quads, I would just start to shit blood after a couple of weeks. It just wouldn't happen. So, so there's, um, there's definitely a, a trade off there. What do you think? I think it's, it's similar to kind of the hit. Um, and you had this discussion with Victor black um, on beast fitness radio. So if people want to listen to that, that was, a, I mean, it was, a great discussion in some ways and not so many in other ways, but it definitely, you explained really well why hit isn't a great long-term strategy and you've got a great amount of experience doing such programming as well. Oh my God. Yeah. I'm not proud of that experience. Um, well, I've got to start somewhere. Yeah, totally. You know, you think, um, you get into this idea of economizing and everything has to be as effective as possible and you forget about the fatigue cost of that. And then there's people on the other side of the equation that are so worried about fatigue they're not ever pushing remotely close to failure, and they're also missing out on results. And the answer isn't just in the middle. The answer is to move from one point in a mesocycle to the other point towards the end of the mesocycle. I think that those, uh, I think that kind of covers that. Cool. No, yeah, definitely. And I know we are pretty much done there, so we're cool that a day. I got. Um, it. And if you got a few minutes. Yeah, man. Let's do another question. Okay. I got six whole minutes. Cool. Let's go for another one. So. Um, I have no idea how to say 
Cage does. Well, it's a very complicated name. I'm just going to continue. This is, the really mean. This is British, British Empire bullshit. <laughs> it's completely yeah, right. It's just, go uh, on. Here, Noah's question. So, how many body parts can you prioritize? <laughs> you try, Steve. <laughs> Come on, you got to try one college try. <laughs> Makij. I'm saying Makij is M A C I E J. Yes. So yeah, I'm going to go with that. Okay. Um, he, he's asking how many body parts can we prioritize simultaneously, um, and he said on that question kind of are there ones where we'd be okay to prioritize them together if we can do more than one and other ones where it wouldn't be a good idea hold please i wrote this down when i was doing a seminar over the last several weeks i sure hope it's uh Let's see. I got a couple places on my phone where I store these things. Ah, okay. So there's a progression you can take with your body uh, that uh, over the course of years will end up deciding for you how many body parts you should be prioritizing and when. So when you start out training, every single body part you take from minimum effective volume to uh, MEV plus because you don't want to go to your MRV when you start out training because it's going to fuck you up. But you train everything hard, not super hard. And then after a couple of years, when you're more intermediate, you start going every body part from minimum effective volume all the way to MRV. So everything is trade prioritized at the same time. Then when you notice that your systemic fatigue is becoming a cap, like, and here's how you notice this. You do a big leg workout and usually you do a chest workout the day after and everything goes great. You hit PRs on chest, but you notice a couple workouts in a row that after a big leg workout, the, the day after you do chest or even two days, it still affects your chest training. You're like, you're just drained centrally at a central level. You're like, I can't try that hard again, <laughs> right? Like your whole body's fucked up. So uh, then you start to basically train, so you still train most of your body parts at MEV to MRV, but you train just a few of them at minimum effective volume only. So like, for example, you take a couple like biceps, triceps or something, put them at MEV only, and then train everything else at full spectrum. At some point, you're gonna get to this situation where you train half of your body parts at minimum effective volume and half at doing the full cycle, so prioritizing. So you're gonna get about half and half, and that usually happens to like people years into their careers and very strong and much bigger because they can prioritize most things, but are, are half of their body and half they have to go on minimum effective volume. After that, the next move is to start to keep the half and half, but to start demoting the minimum effective volume progressors because here's what you don't want to do. You get a half MEV and you got half MEV to MRV. If you start replacing the MEV to MRV ones with MEV ones, eventually at the end of that, you just literally program yourself to do minimum progress on everything, which fucking sucks. You don't want to do that. So you want to start after you get to about half, you turn the MEVs into maintenance volumes. So you start to go, okay, I can't progress on my whole body in any way, period. So I'm just going to start to put things on back burner, not back burner, basically put them on the simmer pan and just have them maintain their temperature uh, and then start replacing MVs with MEVs or MEVs with MVs until you have half MEV to MRV and then half MVs. Um, and then uh, the last move is to leave as many 
uh, to do as many maintenance volume body parts as needed in order to give whatever body parts you want to prioritize enough of your MRV to not hit the systemic top. So like for really advanced people, this like really advanced power lifters might have to put both their bench and all bench movements and their squat and all squat movements at maintenance volume just to bring up their deadlift. That's the, that's super advanced, right? Where so someone who's a beginner, that makes no goddamn sense mm-hmm. at all. And if they tried doing that, it would be a fucking waste of time because they could be progressing on everything. You know, can you imagine like you're training with your buddy and you're like, I'm going to do a deadlift priority cycle. You put on 35 kilos on your deadlift. He puts on 30 on his, but he puts on 20 on his bench and squat. You put on zero. You're like, what the fuck did I do that for? Well, you didn't need it, right? Priority. Here's the thing. Um, it was one of those. I forgot who posted it, but um, someone posted that they wish it wasn't. Uh, maybe it was you. Someone posted that they wish it wasn't like advanced, beginner, intermediate. It yeah, was that like was me. <laughs> old man. Yeah, let's just call you an old fucking fart. Um, people want to prioritize body parts because it makes them feel cool. I don't want to prioritize body parts. I just want to train everything all the goddamn time and grow. But the prioritization is is what you do when shit doesn't work optimally anymore. That's the true answer. So don't prioritize until you absolutely have to. The way you know is if you start bumping into your systemic fatigue. How do you know? When literally other completely disjointed body parts start affecting the training of others. Powerlifters will know exactly what I'm talking about. Bodybuilders at a higher level will. You can have a deadlift workout that ends your week. You just don't go to the gym anymore. You're like, I'm retiring from powerlifting, right? Yeah. And your bench doesn't work anymore. Nothing can be overloaded because you're that fucked up. That's how you know that you can't push your deadlift and the other two lifts at the same time. Maybe you can push two lifts at the same time, but not one lift at the same time. So on and so forth. And when you figure that out, you'll kind of fucking know. Because for a couple of months, you'll just lie to yourself. We all do it. You're like, no, I can still survive all this. And you're like, I just need to get my sleep right. I just need to get my nutrition right. And this, those might buy you a little bit of time. And eventually you're like, okay, there's just no way I can prioritize like my erector training with deadlifts and stuff and still train my quads heavy in the same week. It just isn't working. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you might start to get hurt too, which definitely don't push it that far. And then as you know that your systemic fatigue is too high, then you start to MEV things at first. And then you go through back through the cycle and start to MV things at first. And you end up just going everything in maintenance volume and then dying of old age. <laughs> uh, awesome. Actually, well, not awesome because that was a horrible ending, but I did want to bring <laughs> up um, that Jared, to give some context, I think Jared said he didn't bother prioritize. well, he didn't need to prioritize for a long time in his training career. And everyone probably listening knows of Jared. And so that kind of gives people an awareness that it's not totally. something they need to do very early on. Hundred percent, hundred percent. I don't think I prioritized anything for the first at least seven years of my training, maybe ten. Cool. No, yeah, I, and I'm just realizing that I am getting to a point where I am needing to, um, yep. especially like leg training and things. It's just becoming. Yeah. How long has so, you been training? So yeah, coming to that like seven to eight year mark. There you go. Awesome. I will wrap it up there, guys. I want to say a massive thank you for Mike to coming on again. Um, we have to have more of these coming again. I want to remind everyone that the 14th and 15th of July is the seminar in London. We have the VIP day and the first seminar day. Tickets will be linked below. And as always, um, thank you all for listening, and we will talk to you soon. Thanks so much, folks. Thank you, Steve.